All right, let's open up our Bibles to Acts chapter 18. We're looking at verses 1 through 17. Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 17. And it's a bit of uh, a chunk of verses. And so we're going to break our reading up as we go throughout the passage together. So just make sure you turn to Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 17. And as I was reading this passage this week, I was thinking about... uh, I was thinking about myself, which I do. I guess I do that a lot, right? I read the Bible, and then I think about where am I at with this. And one of the things that made me think about was when I was a kid. When I was a kid, I didn't have, I didn't have friends, right? I had, I had friend. It's usually what I had. I have, like, one. When I was a little kid, I either had no friends or I'd have one friend that I would find that we would hit it off. And, and uh, you know, I feel like I've always been an introvert, sort of a, like a do-my-own-thing kind of a guy. But I wonder, like is am I that way because I never found any friends or did I not find friends because I am sort of that way? I'm not sure. But I didn't have a lot of friends, but even though I didn't have a lot of friends and I am an introvert and I like to kind of be by myself, at least I think I do, um, I still have always longed to belong. I, I think everybody longs to belong. Even if you're an introvert, even if you don't like people, I think that you want to like people and that you are looking for opportunities to connect with others. So I think from a very young age, we search for community, and hopefully we find aspects of that in our family, right? But we usually look for it outside of that as well, and so we're, we're looking for a place where people know us, and we know them, and we actually feel safe. Like, we belong here. The, this, these are our people. We search for community. We, we try to find our people. A lot of people talk about it that way. I'm looking for my people. And I think you can find it in parts, in places. It's real, it's authentic. You can find community that is authentic and, and precious. It doesn't have to be Christian, but I think, I think, and this is the principle that I really want us to, to dial in on today together. I, I think this principle is very much true. When you find God, you find your people. Like, You'll find people that you can have community with outside of this, but when you find God, you really find your people. You find where you truly belong because that's the people that you have been made for. So what I want us to do is I want us to look at this passage together. Paul in the city of Corinth, he's on his second missionary journey in chapter 18, and I want us to follow the way Paul operates to help us to understand how to better not only enjoy the people that we are now a part of, but how we can bring people with us into this communion of the saints, okay? And what Paul does is, first of all, he he models this for us, that we should invite everyone to join us, right? That's number one. Just like Paul, Paul invites everyone to join him, everyone to be with him, just like Jesus did this. He invites everyone indiscriminately, come to me. So we should be doing this as well. Look at verses one through four. It says, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and he worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So we should invite all to join us. We do see this happening. You see, 
What Paul does, what the church does, and what the church has always done is, is that we go where the people are. That's what we do, right? We look for where people are, and then we go to those places because we love people. We actually care about others, and we want them to have what we have. We want to share with them what we have. And so what, where Paul's at now is he goes to Corinth, right? Corinth was a, a, a prosperous city in Greece, a population of about 200,000. Uh, there was a lot of commerce. There was a lot of trade. There was cultural diversity. It was economically strong. And let's just get this out of the way. How many of you have heard that the city of Corinth was like the most immoral place ever? Raise your hand if you've heard that before, right? So, okay, maybe half of you, okay. Not so much. This has been made popular by a few very popular commentaries and Bible teachers. And what a lot of commentaries do is they just copy material from other commentaries and resources. So this sort of myth of Corinth being the worst possible place when Paul was there is a little inaccurate. So let me just say something about Corinth. Yes, Corinth was a pagan city like every other city of the day, right? It was a pagan city. So yeah, it was corrupt and there was was idolatry and idols. And yes, you can read about this temple of Aphrodite uh, that was there. And um, there were temple prostitutes there. But the, the, the messaging is, is that Corinth was so corrupt, there was a thousand working temple prostitutes every day in Corinth. Uh, this simply was not true at this point in time, uh, around 50 AD. Uh, that's not the case. And, uh, and yes, Corinth was said by its contemporaries to be like the worst place in in the region, but the reality is, is that those statements were made long before uh, we get to the Roman occupation of Corinth, which is where we're at right now. Um, and it's also important to keep in mind, and other scholars have made this point, other scholars, I'm not a scholar, I'm not saying other, like me, I'm saying I've read these scholars who have made this argument, and what they say is, is that a lot of neighboring cities and regions would put Corinth on blast and give them really low, low Yelp ratings because they were jealous of their affluence and their comfort and their success. You know how cities, you know, they'll get into feuds and fights, and that's what was happening, so... This whole idea of Corinth being the worst imaginable place ever, not, 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 too real, not too real, not too real. But yes, it is a worldly city where there was a lot of ungodliness, but it wasn't uncommon. It was like the Fox Valley, right? Is it not, I don't think it was all that different. Maybe a little bit, but it's besides the point. Paul goes to where the people are. And what this demonstrates for us, like Paul goes wherever the people are, whatever kind of a city it is, he'll, go, he'll talk to Jews, he'll talk to Greeks, he'll talk to everybody. Because for Paul and for us, like, we don't write people off. We don't write people off. We don't go like, oh, well, that's your background. That's what you've done. That's how far you've, you've gone. Like, then there's, there's no point in even trying. We, we don't do that. We, we don't write people off. We reach out to everyone. We make an effort with everyone to encourage them, to invite them to know Jesus. So Paul goes to Corinth, and he, he finds this Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, and from Italy with his wife Priscilla. They were in Italy. So Aquila and Priscilla are a married couple. They are Christians, right? So they have this in common with Paul. Paul finds out about them. He wants to meet with them because they're well-educated. They're strongly taught. They're great theologians. They're teachers. So he finds them. He, he hears about them. He wants to have fellowship with them because they have this shared faith in common. But they also have a shared trade. Paul was a tent maker. If you don't know what that is, it means he makes tents, 
That's what he did. So he made tents and like, you know, like that was not just any, I mean, anybody can do it, but not do it well. Paul was good at it. It was, a, it was a vocation for him to support himself while he was doing ministry. Now, while Paul says, listen, uh, I'm, I'm allowed to take full support and just do ministry all the time. I don't have to do this, but I want to continue to support myself as much as I can by making these tents because I want the money that would come to me to go to other missionaries and other churches. Right? That was Paul's mindset. So he was, really, he was really selfless in that. Now, when Paul is saying this, he's like, I, I want those gifts to go elsewhere. It doesn't mean that he doesn't accept gifts. He clearly does, and he does even from Corinth. Now, he meets Aquila and Priscilla, and they're gonna come into the story again later on uh, but they are tent makers, and so he, he connects with them. He's like, this is a good connection. Good, feels good. Um, so that's what he does. And while he's doing that, right, on the weekends, on Saturday, he goes to the synagogue, and that's where he begins to preach the gospel to the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, right? He reasoned in the synagogue every Saturday and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So what does Paul do, right? He goes to where the people are. In this case, it's Corinth. He meets Aquila and Priscilla. He finds people who are a part. Uh, he finds his people, right? It's, these are not just tent makers that make him his people. They are a part of the family of God. And he preaches Jesus. We're all called to do this, right? We preach Jesus. We invite everyone indiscriminately to join us in our faith. That is a way we should be thinking about it. We're not just inviting them to follow Jesus, abstracted from us. We are inviting them to join us in following Jesus, we're inviting outsiders to become insiders. It means that we, be, we should be viewing evangelism and outreach, whether that's formal or informal, whether you're just talking to somebody that you're meeting casually, whether you're laying down the gospel in bullet points, right? Whatever we're doing, we are inviting people to draw near to God and to join God's people. It's an invitation. And an invitation to God is normal. Like this has been going on Throughout all of scripture, God's always inviting people to himself, sinners to himself. He calls us to repent of our sins and to draw near in humility. Let me give you a couple of examples. James chapter four, verses eight through 10. Here James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. This is repentance, right? Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Right? God will receive you if you draw near to him, if you come to him, if you seek him. So evangelism is an invitation to everyone to draw near to God. Not because they are worthy, not because they are clean enough to enter into God's presence, but because God is a gracious and loving and forgiving God and has provided redemption and cleansing and forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Isaiah 55, let me read you just one other passage on this. Isaiah 55, verses six and seven. Just again, to make this point that God invites the sinful and the corrupt to come to him. It says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that they may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And I don't know about you, but I need abundant pardon. I don't need pardon. <laughs> I need abundant pardon. I am a wreck. And so are you. Hopefully you know that. And God isn't stingy. He isn't cheap when it comes to grace and pardon. He is liberal. He gives. He pours out. He's generous. 
Jesus does this too. It's not just like in, you know, throughout scripture, this thing, draw near to God. Jesus, what does Jesus say all the time? Jesus offers an invitation all the time. He says, come to me. That's an invitation, right? Come to me, which is a, which is a way of saying, believe in me, right? But by saying, come to me, he extends it really as an invitation. Come to me, you, you come close. Jesus is God in the flesh, the perfect, the perfect demonstration of God in human form, fully God, fully man. Jesus stands here, and instead of saying, you're all unclean, get away from me, he says, all of you unclean, come to me. Believe in me. Follow me. Jesus does this again and again. And so what we're doing is we, like Paul, are supposed to be inviting people to join us in knowing and seeking and following the Savior. So really, evangelism is not just, again, not just believe in Jesus, follow Jesus, it's join us as we follow. For example, throughout the book of Acts, what does it say? Um, like in Acts 2.38, repent, right? So there's like the invitation in general, right? Repent, which means return from your sins, trust in Christ, the whole thing. Repent and be baptized. That's what it says. Repent and be baptized. And baptism is a connection to the church. Right? So the command is not just, hey man, just you and Jesus go and go in peace, believe in Jesus, and then go your own way. It's no, no, no. Come to Jesus and come to his people. Become a part of his community, his kingdom, his body, his family. Like in John 1.12, John 1.12 says, uh, as many as received him, speaking of Jesus, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, right? To them was given the right to be called children of God. We become something we were not when we believe in Jesus. And one of the things that we become are children adopted into a family. And we now not only have God as father, but we have Christians as brother and sister, Jesus himself makes this point in Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 46. While Jesus was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother, that's Mary, and his brothers, half-brothers, they stood outside wanting to speak to him. You know how family is. Like they expect special treatment or something. Like, I want to get in there. But Jesus replied to the man who told him, he says, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. The point that he's making is that there is a true community of faith. There is a, there is a true people that we are called to be a part of. There is real family that we are made a part of when we know Christ. We are not just people who share an experience or a, a Sunday uh, service. We share an identity. We share a mission. We share a faith. So this is really important for us to, as we're reading the book of Acts and thinking about how we are called to be ambassadors of Christ in our city, in our county, in this state, in this country, in this culture, right? As we consider it, we need to think about our responsibility and privilege to invite people to join us as we follow Jesus. We're gonna come back to that. So number one, we invite everyone indiscriminately to join us. Number two, we leave the results to God. 
This is important. We talked a little bit about this last week. We do the work of, of evangelism. We invite people. We, we, we tell everyone, listen, God loves sinners like you, like me. So come and seek, taste and see that the Lord is good. We do that. But then will they believe or not? Will they come? We leave that up to God. Now look with me at verses five through eight here. It says, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, I mean, he's doing his teaching, he's doing his preaching, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. We leave the results to God. Silas and Timothy show up, right? These are partners with Paul on this missionary journey. Uh, Silas, you might remember if you've been with us as we've been going through the book of Acts, or if you're familiar with the book of Acts, you remember uh, Silas, Acts 15. He was one of the teachers in Jerusalem and the church there, um, and he began to get noticed and recognized for his leadership, and now he's a missionary with Paul and Timothy. Timothy is young here. The scholars that I've read on this say Timothy was maybe in his late teens, early 20s. So he's actually really young at this point uh, when he's joining Paul on this second missionary journey. And, and a lot of scholars, this is, there's a, this is a guess, but a lot of scholars believe that uh, Timothy was probably converted during Paul's first missionary journey. So his first time through, young Timothy believes, he savingly believes. What we know for sure about Timothy is that, and we read this in First and Second Timothy, letters that were written by Paul to this Timothy, we know that he was raised in the faith, right, in the scriptures by his mom and his grandma. They were constantly teaching him the God's word and investing in him. And so when Paul shows up later in life, he's a young man, he hears the gospel and he believes. And we know that this Timothy becomes a pastor why First and Second Timothy are written to him directly. So here we have uh, Silas and Timothy. They've arrived. Paul's busy preaching the word, and um, he experiences two things, which is what we tend to experience when we're sharing the gospel and inviting people to join us as we follow Jesus. Uh, he experiences rejection and acceptance. And you will experience rejection and acceptance. So let's start with this. Number one, uh, rejection is normal. Rejection is normal. It doesn't mean that it doesn't mean it's always you're always going to be rejected. It doesn't mean you should be pessimistic. It just means don't be surprised when people who have not had their minds spiritually enlightened, who who haven't who haven't been born again by the Spirit of God, don't like your message of repent of your sins and believe in Jesus and follow him as God. Don't be surprised that they don't like uh, the ideas that you put forth. That that they're Previous religious experience, while might, having, while might have some sort of personal uh, experiential value to them, do not reflect the, re the real God who created the heavens and the earth. So we need to be honest about this. We're going to be opposed. And what we see here is that he was opposed and slandered. All right? He was reviled. That's what it says. They opposed and reviled him. Reviled is a word we don't use, but it means, it can mean slandered. It can mean cussed. Right, to be cussed out or to be talking poorly about. Paul was opposed by these people, his Jewish people, his, his Jewish family, slandered and cussed out. Rejection is normal. 
we shouldn't be surprised. In Matthew chapter five, uh, verses 11 and 12, Jesus makes this point. Blessed are you when others revile you, same word, and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It should not surprise any of us. This is normal. It doesn't mean it feels good. It doesn't mean that you're high-fiving because you are being reviled. But it does mean that you are drawing near and relying on God's grace in those moments because you know that this is a part of the process and a part of the plan. I like 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 14 specifically for this. Here, Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Peter's... Peter says, listen, when you are cursed and, and mocked and, and belittled and rejected for your faith and for the invitation that you extend, while it's painful, you are experiencing, you, you have a closeness to God that you wouldn't otherwise have. God is close to the brokenhearted. He is near you. You are blessed. That means favored. It doesn't mean comfortable. It means that God is, is going to give you what you need to continue. So Paul is opposed and he's slandered and he's cussed. And then you read something that makes it sound like Paul quit. You see that? They opposed him. And so what does Paul do? He, he takes his outer garment, like his cloak, and he shakes it out, being all dramatic like Paul, being all dramatic, shaking the dust off of it. And he says, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there. Well, that's okay. That's dramatic, okay? I don't know why he just couldn't just say it. You know, he had to be, make a whole show about it. Um, did Paul quit? Did Paul give up? Well, there's a sense in which you might say yes, but I think it's better for us to think it through. Paul, didn't, Paul doesn't give up on anybody, right? Paul goes to everybody. That's the model. He will go anywhere at any time to tell anybody about Jesus. He's been spending all this time here. What's happening, though, is that Paul is now seeing that these people that he has been speaking to, these specific people, they are hard-hearted and resistant. Their hearts are hard and they are resistant. They are showing no signs of repentance. In fact, they are continuing to be hostile, antagonistic toward him in the message, perhaps even dangerous. And so after doing all that he can to reach them and sees nothing happening, he says, okay, I'm out. All right? And it's not that he is giving up. He is, every opportunity that we have to talk to people about Jesus, every mission trip, everything that, every ministry moves from some people to other people. At some point, it changes. Here, it's changing because of their hard-heartedness. But because they are so stubborn and hard-hearted and antagonistic, Paul does get dramatic. He takes his cloak off and he shakes it out. And he says, listen, I'm, I'm shaking the dust off. I'm moving on because you are refusing this offer of grace. And the reason probably, probably, the reason that Paul is so dramatic about this is because these are his people, like nationally. These are his Jewish brothers and sisters. He's close to them. He's, Paul is the a Hebrew of Hebrews, he calls himself. 
and he longs for his Jewish brothers and sisters to become a part of the kingdom of God and become his spiritual brothers and sisters on the deepest level. And they're resistant and they have the scripture. They read it every week. Like they, they have the scripture and they're missing it. So yes, he is saying like, you have no more excuses. You have heard the, the truth. I am going to move on and I'm going to go to the Gentiles. Now, it's, it's funny, and, and in fact, I was just talking to one of our members after this. It was funny, because he brought up, he goes, it's kind of funny that, um, that he does this big dramatic thing. I'm going, I'm leaving, I'm going to leave this, and he just goes next door. But that's what he does. <laughs> and I said, that's actually very funny. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell everybody that you said that, because uh, that is exactly what happens. He left there, and he went to the house of a man named Titus Justus. His house was next door to the synagogue. <laughs> That's awesome. I don't know if he's trolling them or if it's just it's God's providence. I don't know what's going on. But yeah, he goes to Titus Justice and he goes there, who was a, a worshiper. At Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, the place that he just left, becomes a believer. And then his whole household believes. Can you imagine? Crispus believes, and so does his entire household. He joins. Paul and his family joins Crispus. It's not just you coming to Jesus, it's you joining the people who are following Jesus. That's why we leave the results to God because rejection is normal, we see that, but acceptance here, we can see it. Acceptance is celebrated. And sometimes we get a little too, uh, I don't know, in up, up in our heads about this. Like, oh, we don't want to count. We don't want to count. We don't want to be about numbers. We want to be about souls. You know, we don't want to focus on numbers. We don't want to make a big deal out of numbers. And okay, well, listen, if you can't read the book of Acts and not understand that, wow, when people become Christians, it's celebrated. When, when the gospel is accepted, it's celebrated. And you know what people do? You know what Christians do? You know what the church does when that happens? They take numbers. They start counting, like, look at all these people. Holy cow, how many people is that that believe? Holy smoke. And they write it down. Who are the names? They start writing it down. Acceptance should be celebrated because we're not celebrating decisions. We're not celebrating numbers. We're celebrating the grace of God at work in people's lives. We're celebrating that. So, we invite everyone to join us as we follow Jesus. We leave the results to God. And number three, we find strength to do this in God's grace. Because the rejection is pretty hard. The acceptance is overwhelming. And all of it is beyond our capabilities by ourselves. So we need God's strength. Look at verses nine and we'll start with nine and 10 maybe. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. So Paul is, is out there, he's doing his thing, he's getting some pushback, some resistance, some slander, uh, but he's also seeing people converted and, and people being changed, and so God comes to him in this vision, and he tells Paul what? Do not be afraid. Why would he say that to Paul? You think Paul might be afraid? Yeah, right? That's what, God doesn't say don't be afraid to people who aren't afraid. Kind of a waste of breath. He tells us who are frightened, fearful, overwhelmed, or doubting. 
don't be afraid. And what God really says here, he says, Paul, don't be afraid because in light of everything that's happening, I am with you. You don't, you don't have to be afraid. And th- listen, this principle applies for every aspect of your life, not just m- ministry or missionary enterprise or, or evangelistic endeavors. When, when you are facing the impossible, the overwhelming, the confusing, the painful, God says what? Fear not, I am with you. God's been saying this from the beginning, Old Testament, New Testament. God says it all the time. Do not be afraid. It's not that you're not going to encounter fearful experiences, but when you do, God is present, and he is there with a purpose. Listen to Isaiah 41, verse 10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. That's what God tells us in the midst of Weakness, I'm with you to strengthen you. Or Psalm 23, we've had to do a number of funerals recently. I've done more funerals than weddings, and I've done a lot of weddings over the years. And Psalm 23 is so often read in funerals because it's honest. Life is oftentimes dark and evil. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Doesn't deny that evil exists or that the days aren't dark. It admits these realities. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me, your right hand, your rod, and your staff. They guide, they comfort, they protect. This is what God tells us. I'm here with you at all of these critical moments to strengthen you to persevere. And so he tells Paul, listen, you're you're going to experience hardships, but your life's not going to get taken from you. So listen, just, just trust me and keep at it. And Paul stays. Paul stays. And um, it's not easy, right? It's not easy. Just because God says, hey, don't be afraid, doesn't mean he's not saying, oh, it's going to be a piece of cake. He's not saying that. The reason he's saying don't be afraid is because it's not going to be a good time. There's going to be a lot of difficulties. There's going to be, I mean, there might be joys and moments of of brilliant exaltation, but there are also going to be moments of, of debilitating discouragement where you have to look up from the pit and find God in his grace and remember, no, 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 he's with me. He's going to strengthen me to continue on. So Paul stays, and it's not easy because there's all kinds of drama in verses 12 through 17. I've got to do this part quick. It says, when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. So we've seen this before, right? Certain leaders are upset. Certain people are upset with what Paul is doing, and so they bring him to the governing authorities to try to have charges trumped up against him and to see him punished, removed, killed, or something. They say this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, then I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. Uh, Gallio says, not my problem. Don't care. So you just deal with it. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And so um, he drove them from the tribunal, and they seized Sosthenes, right? 
Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue who had become a believer, and they beat him in front of the tribunal, but Gallio paid no attention to any of this. So that's what's happening there. Things got hard, right? The drama was real. The drama was trauma, right? It was, it was, it was intense. This is why God said at the beginning, Paul, don't be afraid. It'll get crazy, but I'm with you, and I'm there to support you and strengthen you. So as we're thinking about us finding God, knowing Christ, and, and then us bringing other people into this with us, what are we doing? We're inviting everybody to join us as we follow. We are leaving the results to God, trusting God to do what only he can do to convert, to change minds. And we find strength in God's grace to continue. We need divine strength. Paul says this thing in Colossians 1, 28 and 29 that it has stuck with me since the first time that I read it because it, it really does seem to be at the heart of who Paul is and how he thinks about ministry. He says, you know, him we proclaim Jesus. Him we proclaim teaching everyone and admonishing everyone with all wisdom that we might present everyone complete or mature in Christ. So that's his thing in verse 28. He's like, I just, my, my burden is to get other people to know Jesus and to help them become mature, strong, faithful believers. And then he says, and for this purpose also I toil, struggle, labor, intense work. He says, I toil, striving according to his power which he mightily works within me. That's Paul's perspective and that should be ours. This for me is big because because, again, the principle. When you find God, you find your people. And while some, some of us are looking for our people, while a lot, of, a lot of Americans, neighbors, a lot of people in the world, they're, they're looking for their people before they're looking for God. And I think you really find your people when you find God. I think it comes together so we should be passionate about encouraging and inviting others to come to know God, to, to, to know the God that, that we know. We should be a people that want to share what we have with others because we find our people here. You know, you, if you find God, you find out who you are. Right, because you're made in his image. You, you find God, you, you find your people because you find people that you have not something in common with but you have a shared identity with. We don't all gather together at Redeemer. We don't, hopefully we feel like a family. I could say this, I could say this for me. You know, I never had friends growing up. I'd have like one. Uh, I finally had a small group of friends when I was a teenager. But I didn't find my people until I found God. And here at, at Redeemer, what do I find? But I find people who love me and accept me and uh, encourage me and strengthen me and rebuke me and, and all of the above, right? Like in the church, not every church, because I know not all churches are healthy, but it's supposed to be that when you find God, right, you find your people because his people gather in churches and in these churches we're supposed to love one another and accept one another. We don't care about your past or your baggage or how bad you screwed up or how bad you're screwing up now. We still love you, we wanna help you. It's like we see each other not as allies but as family, brothers and sisters, not just people who have a, have a shared opinion on things. 
We can disagree on a whole lot of, we, we do disagree on a lot of opinions, but various, you all have some stupid opinions. I have more stupid opinions. It's, 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 that's the truth, right? crazy opinions. But what we have in common is a shared identity, people made in God's image, a shared, uh, renewed identity, right? We are redeemed by Jesus Christ. We have a shared faith. We have a shared mission, a shared purpose. And we should want to share that. I just want to, I want to encourage you, if you don't know Jesus yet, I just want you to, I just want you to know that I, I, I truly want you to be my friend because my friend is Jesus, right? And we should all have that mentality and I'm not coming up with that. That's what First John says, right? We, I think we so rightly exalt Christ and say that he's the point that we sometimes downplay church because so many churches get it wrong and we get it wrong at times, right? Like, well, you know, church isn't perfect. Jesus, but listen to how John says this. We're gonna end with this. First John 1, that which was from the beginning, he's talking about Jesus, right? That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and we testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. So he's talking about Jesus. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you may have fellowship with us. Right? I just would not lead with that because I'm a mess. Why would I lead with me? I want you to have fellowship with Jesus. That's where I would go. But John gets it. He's like, no, 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 I want, we preach Jesus to you because we want you to have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. That's the perspective that we need, right? It is a heart for God and for others that invites everyone to come in. We, I want you to have fellowship with us, not because of us, but because our fellowship is with him. That's why I want you to come in. And our joy won't even be complete until this happens. This is how our joy is fulfilled, by seeing others join us. We're not excited for people to join our church because our church is the best church. We are excited for people to join with us because we, together, are following the Savior. That's the invitation, right? The invitation to be known by God and, and loved and accepted by God, and then to be known and loved and accepted by God's people, which become our people. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would, uh, Lord, that you would push away confusing thoughts that we have about these issues, and wherever we're not thinking rightly, Lord, would you correct that? And we pray that you would take the truth of your word and that it would grow deep roots in our heart and that it would bear fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.